0: Our sermon today comes from Psalm 107. Uh, forgive me, I, uh, it's page 506 in the pew Bibles. Psalm 107. Uh, but before we get into this, uh, do we have the uh, the slides? Uh, Let's run through these worldview questions That uh, we've been using To remind us of the, the psalmist worldview Who is the Lord? The God of steadfast love and justice What does He do? He blesses and protects those Who embrace His covenant from the heart While demonstrating His justice Against those who rebel against Him When does He do these things? Often in the here and now, and certainly in the world to come. So what should we do? Brace His covenant from the heart, and wait patiently yet fervently for His justice. So we've been using these questions and answers that were developed by Jay Sklar to help us understand the background of really all of the Psalms. And today in Psalm 107, we are going to hear how those who know the God of steadfast love and justice can glorify Him in a simple but beautiful way. Uh, But first, let's pray as we come to God's Word. O Lord God, You had mercy on Your people long ago, and You led them back from exile, back from Babylon, back to the promised land. So guide us now. Through the preaching of your word, that following our Savior, we may walk as elect exiles in this present age. Toward the glory of the age to come. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul. He fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons for They had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So He bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He sent out His Word and healed them, and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, and tell of His deeds in songs of joy. Some... "...went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end." He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in, They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly. And he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction. And makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad. And all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. If you're like me, then you want to be wise. And so today we're going to follow those instructions in verse 43 and consider the steadfast love of the Lord. And we're going to do that by asking really two questions, starting with a simple one. What has the Lord done? If I asked you, what has the Lord done? How would you respond? If someone asked me, to be honest, I would probably start off kind of slow. Because I'm often thinking about something else. My mind is often distracted. I might hem and haw and say something just completely obvious like, well, he sent Jesus to rescue people from sin. And then if I thought about it a little bit more, I would, I would add more detail. And, and he sent his spirit to build his church. And, oh, and he's coming again to make everything new. And those statements are all true, of course. But at the same time, they're kind of vague, aren't they? Because the reality of what he's done is not really very fresh in my mind. There's a distinct lack of specificity in what I said. And on top of that, it's not terribly personal. And that lack of personal detail, I think, is why some people have trouble understanding Christians when we talk. We use a little too much Christianese. We use a little too much shorthand. When we're vague about what God has done, when we fail to paint the picture of the story of redemption in all its rich color, we don't really do it justice. In other words, how can I expect other people to fully appreciate and enjoy the depths of God's gracious work if I am not really considering the depth of what he's done myself? But put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite who had just returned from Babylon to the promised land. This psalm is written in that context. This is post-exile, after they've been returned to the land, after 70 years of exile. 70 years suffering consequences for their abandoning the Lord as a nation. After 70 years, He brought you home. Instead of the Euphrates, now you're drawing water from the Siloam Pool in Jerusalem. Instead of surrounded by idols, you're surrounded again by the walls of the city of Jerusalem. You're back in the place promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Back in the place where God said He would be your God and you would be His people. Back on Mount Zion where God said He would cause His name to dwell forever. You're back home. Imagine the freshness of your joy. Imagine what you would say then to that question. What has the Lord done? The answer forms the heart of this psalm. The four scenes in verses 4 through 32 are painted with all the colors of grace. From the darkest black to flourishing greens and browns. Here in this psalm are the bright blues and golds used by someone who, whose eyes have freshly seen God's grace. And while at a glance these four scenes may seem to be individual pictures, portraits of four different kinds of people, they actually work together more like coordinating parts of a giant mural. Yes, you can zoom in on each one individually and discover specific detail, but they are actually meant to work together to tell the single, unified story of Israel's covenant-breaking and the Lord's covenant-keeping. The four scenes are four ways of looking at one reality such that every Israelite would be able to see themselves in every scene. They would appreciate how each scene works together to beautifully illustrate something that the psalmist says in verses 2 and 3. Look there. The psalmist summarizes what the Lord has done in two key words. The four scenes work together to show how the Lord has redeemed and how He has gathered His people who were in trouble and scattered to the winds. The Lord has redeemed and the Lord has gathered. These two works of the Lord show up throughout the psalm and we're going to see that in a moment, but first notice how what He has done is actually an expression of His character. In verse 1, we see how redeeming and gathering His people is really His goodness on display. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. In His works, His steadfast love finds expression in time and in space. I I just can't overemphasize the importance of seeing the connection between the Lord's redeeming and gathering work with His character. Because then and now, if we only focus on what the Lord does, then when things don't go our way our hope tends to dry up. But if we hold on to the good and loving and unchanging character of God, then our hope in every season can overflow, enduring even through the darkest days. The God of steadfast love has redeemed and gathered He's shown his people what he's really like. A God whose steadfast love endures forever. And so now I want us to look at how his redeeming and gathering love show up throughout the psalm. Look first at verses 4 through 9. This first scene paints the picture of God's people longing for a home. The experience of being wanderers in need of a city, in need of a place, in need of a refuge. That longing would be fresh in the mind of an Israelite who was just getting back to Jerusalem. They know what it means to be lost and looking. They know what it means to be so hungry and thirsty that the hope of finding a home for themselves was Nearly exhausted. As it says, their spirits were fainting. Can you identify with that? Do you know what it feels like to be longing for a true home, for a place of security, a place where not only are your basic needs of food and water met, but a place where you belong, where you feel the welcome of God, just as truly as you feel the welcome of other people. What are you doing with those longings? How have you been trying to satisfy the hunger and thirst, not just of your body, but of your soul? We see what these exiles had to do. What they came to do in verse 6. And this verse introduces us to the refrain that's going to appear in each of these four scenes. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. The people turned to the Lord in faith. Laying their unmet desire for a home at His feet. This is really for us a picture of faith and repentance. They trust in the Lord alone to provide for what they need, for what they can't provide for themselves. And the gospel, the good news for them is seen, and that their hope is not put to shame because it says he delivered them from their distress. He gave them more than food and water. It says he led them by a straight way to a city. He led them to a home. Verse 9 tells us that's the kind of God that He is. The one who satisfies the longing soul. He's the God who fills hungry people with good things. And so we shouldn't be surprised that when God the Son put on flesh, revealing Himself in Jesus of Nazareth, He spoke of Himself as the one who came to seek and to save the lost. He describes Himself as the way home to the Father. He is the bread of life who satisfies our hunger. He is living water from whom we drink and we thirst no more. And yet it was He... Who hung on the cross to save the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, lost children, exiles from Eden, one and all. And on the cross it was he who said, I thirst. He suffered want so that you and I might be satisfied in him. And yet after his suffering, he rose promising to all who trust in him, not just spiritual food and drink, his own body and blood given to sustain us in this wilderness. But he promised, he promised a home that he himself is preparing even now. And so it is that in Jesus we see again the redeeming and gathering love of God. And what should we say to such love? How should we respond to such a Savior as Jesus? The second scene is in verses 10 through 16. Here the picture of God's people is widened helping us to see that they were not only wanderers looking for a home, but they were also willful rebels. Any student of the Old Testament will know that it was Israel's rebellion against the Lord that was the reason for their exile. As we see in verse 11, as both individuals and as a nation, they had gone against the words of the Lord. They had rejected the counsel that was given to them through the prophets time and time again. Come, Israel, let us walk in the light of the Lord, Isaiah said. And no one listened. Stiff-necked people, they persisted in their guilt. And stiff-necked, they were led by force into darkness, into the grinding toil of life as captives in Babylon. But this passage shows us that it was not ultimately the arm of Babylon that brought them into captivity. It was the strong arm of the Lord Himself in verse 12 who bowed their hearts down. This imagery from their exile. It it fits beautifully the picture of our condition as fallen humanity. As you and I have followed the, the footsteps of our first father, Adam, as we ourselves have rebelled against the Lord, discarding, setting aside His word so easily, we ourselves have found Uh, ourselves enslaved, imprisoned in a jail cell that we aren't strong enough to get ourselves out of. As we can identify with the Israelites of the Exodus, we can then understand why it was that they, in their helplessness, they, knowing their guilt, turned once again to the Lord. Look at verse 13. We see the refrain again. Once again, they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. It was the Lord Himself who rescued them, who brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death. And it tells us, it assures us that yes, His arm is strong enough to bind. But His arm is also strong enough to free. And this has been the hope of God's people throughout the story. Whenever God's people have been confronted with their own sin and guilt, they turn to the Lord in hope. Because though He is a God of justice, He is a God of steadfast love as well. A God who is merciful, abundant in compassion. And God's people have always celebrated this truth. And it was celebrated so well by Zechariah in the Gospel of Luke when he understood what was happening, that the Messiah was coming. Zechariah said that he knew God had come to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. He says, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And in the same Gospel of Luke, Jesus Himself assured God's people that this indeed is why He had come. Jesus said in the opening of His ministry, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But have you counted the cost? Have you considered the cost of your freedom? Because the Gospel tells us that Jesus Himself descended into the darkness of death, laying down His life and resting His own body in the tomb so that when He burst the doors of death, He might carry us into life with Him. He shattered the bonds that held us fast. And all this He did so that He could be with you and so that you could be with Him. What should we say to such redeeming and gathering love? How should we respond to such a Savior as Jesus? Verses 17 to 22 show us that third scene. And it speaks of fools. Now, here in this passage, a fool, uh, being a fool is not an issue of intellect. Rather, it's an issue of willfulness. It says, some were fools through their sinful ways. And because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. This passage, in this passage, we have to remember that the hurt, the pain that we experience in this life, is not always caused by sin. However, this is something that we talk about in our house, in those moments of discipline. We say, sin is. Always hurts. There is no escape from it. Sin always hurts. the The kind of soul sickness that we see pictured for us in this passage, as as they are even too sick to even eat, it seems. This sickness pictured here is, as one writer puts it, it, it shows us that it's not the kind of sickness. That carries no blame. Yes, there are struggles, there are afflictions for which we are not to blame. But that is not this. It's a picture of people who were close to death as individuals. Close to death as a nation. Close to collecting the wages of sin. And here and now, I can identify with them. And you can too, I believe. As you and I, as we join ourselves to Christ's church, the very first thing that we acknowledge is that we are sinners in the sight of God, justly, rightly deserving His displeasure, and without hope except in His sovereign mercy. In that, we confess that we know what it is that we deserve for doing whatever we have wanted to do. That fierce independence that resides in the heart of every sinful person. We know what it deserves. And yet when we recognize the cost of our sin, when we recognize the trouble that we are in, we can also identify with that cry in verse 19. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. The very trouble that they had caused themselves. They cried to the Lord in their trouble and He delivered them from their distress. In verse 20, the grace of God is shown for what it truly is. That to undeserving people He sent out His Word, and He healed them. And He rescued them. He delivered them from destruction. That is, He delivered them from their self-wrought destruction. And And so we say, this is not merely help for hapless people who just happen to find themselves in a predicament. But this is truly love for the loveless Our guilt that we ourselves confess shows us God's redeeming and gathering work for what it really is. Unmerited favor. And that's exactly what we see in the person of Jesus. The Gospel shows us that great exchange that Luther talked about. That great exchange that happened on the cross as Christ took on Himself the wages of sin, which is death. And in exchange, he counted us as righteous. We are counted as having the very righteousness of Christ, so that by faith in him, we are counted as fools no longer, but rather sons and daughters of God, because of his redeeming and gathering love. What should we say to such love? How should we respond to such a Savior as Jesus? We see the last scene in verses 23 to 32. This is a picture of storm-tossed Israel. The waves and the seas were pictures in the ancient world of the chaos of the world, of the powers that were too big for us to handle. And so this is actually a picture of human smallness compared to God's infinite power, of which the ocean's power is only a picture. But did you notice what happened as these sailors are face to face with the power of God? What does it say in verse 27? What place did they come to? They were at their wit's end. Can you identify with that? Have there been times in your life where the storms of your life are simply too big for you? And the self-sufficiency that you have tried to exercise in this world is shown for what it really is woefully inadequate, utterly empty. if we can identify ourselves with these people who have come face to face with the storms of life and were simply overwhelmed, then we can also identify with their cry in verse 28. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. And He reveals His power not only to raise a storm, but to quiet one to hush the waves of the sea. He delivered them, and their hearts were glad when he brought them to a safe haven. I love the simplicity of, the, uh, uh, of a children's song that we play in our house sometimes. It's by Sandra McCracken. It's from uh, an album called Big Stories for Little Ones by Rain for Roots. I would commend it if you have small kids. But I would commend it to us as well. It's a song called Jesus Stops a Storm. It says, The storm was big, their boat was small. But guess who was not scared at all? Who stilled that storm with just a word? who wouldn't find it all that hard. His name is Jesus, Lord of all, and he will answer when you call. His name is Jesus, Lord of all, and he will answer when you call. Our own strength will always be shown to be insufficient, but Jesus is always more than enough for his people. What should we say to such redeeming, gathering love? How should we respond to such a Savior as Jesus? In verses 33 through 41, the, the pattern drops and a conclusion is drawn. I wish we had more time to spin here, but let me sum it up this way. He sums it up as showing us that the Lord who then acted is presently today a God who delights in great reversals. He blesses those who embrace Him. He blesses them even if for a time they must endure hardship and suffering. but he demonstrates his justice at the same time. Those who continue trying to satisfy their hunger and thirst, those who continue like Babel long ago, those who continue trying to make a name for themselves by establishing their own city apart from God, those who continue in their rebellion against him will only know him as an adversary. But there's a very different response that we see from the people in verse 32 who see the justice as well as the grace of God. If, if they see his redeeming and gathering love, there is a very different response that wells up in their hearts. Verse 42 shows us what it is. It says, the upright see it and are glad I remember reading this psalm with a friend during seminary we sat on a bench between classes reading aloud in the sun and crying as we read because in the four scenes at the center of this psalm Written thousands of years ago, when Israel was coming back from exile, in this very same psalm, we saw ourselves in all the scenes. And we knew in that moment the same goodness, the same love of God that His people knew back then. Because like them, we knew what He had done for us. Not in the return of from exile that they experienced, but what he had done for us in the person of Jesus, our Lord, who himself is the gathering one. He himself is the redeeming one who has redeemed a people for himself by his own death and resurrection with the promise of all the blessings that God has to give, given to us in him. Partially now, yes, we experience them today. It is good to know the Lord today. And yet we also know that it's better for our pain now to end and for us to be with the Lord. And yet beyond that, we know that it is best to enjoy the Lord, to know the Lord in a resurrected body. In the, in the new heavens, and the new earth, that he himself is preparing. And that gladness that my friend and I experienced, it welled up in our hearts and began to overflow. And so we know the answer to the question. If we are glad, if we see the goodness and love of God and that makes our hearts glad, we know what the right response is. It's what the psalm leader calls for the people of God to do in verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord. Thanksgiving is a difficult thing for us sometimes. Well, I'll speak for myself. There are things that hinder us from giving thanks. One is, simply put, that we don't know the love of God. We don't know His goodness. We have not experienced His redemption. We have not been gathered in yet. But I think even for us as believers, we can understand something of why we struggle to give thanks. And I think it's the same reason that I struggle to write thank you notes to people. I can remember when we were in St. Louis. I had to raise support for a season, as I was doing an internship and uh, and working for the church that we were a part of there. And I wrote letters and I made calls. And if you've ever raised support, you know what a a lot of work that actually is. And you might also know what surprise. What surprising things happen when you raise support. Sometimes the people that you expect to give a lot don't give anything. And sometimes the people that you think aren't really able to do much, they overwhelm you. But you know what I was when that happened? When Grady and Jenny Love, my old pastor and his wife, when they gave beyond what I knew they should, I was ungrateful. Not in words so much, not really in my heart. I, I didn't think, man, they, yeah, they really owed me something. I didn't think that. But what I did not do was express my gratitude. I didn't write them a letter, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't make a phone call to thank them. A few weeks passed, and then a couple of months passed. And I got a letter in the mail one day from Grady. He said, Sam, we haven't heard from you. We don't understand. But we need to let you know that moving forward, we're not going to be able to support you anymore. And my heart broke. Not because I had lost the hope of a little bit of money coming into our account, but rather my heart broke because someone who had loved me deeply, who had shown their love for me, my heart broke because I had hurt them and I had failed to show gratitude. I think sometimes we struggle not to say thank you, you, not because the gift that we have been given isn't great. I, I don't think we struggle because there's something lacking in the gift giver. No, I think the struggle is actually that heart level struggle to remember what we have actually needed, God has fully provided for. I think I struggle to give thanks because in my flesh... I'm an ungrateful person. And when I forget what it is that God has done, the the mental distance between the realities of redemption, that, that mental distance makes me slow to respond appropriately to God's grace. Or to say it more simply, when our memory fails, our thanksgiving fails, But, but if we keep our redemption fresh, if we remind ourselves, if we remind each other of exactly what it is that God has done, if we paint the picture for each other with all the colors that are in the palette God has given to us in his word, then that fresh vision of our redemption, of how God has shown us his goodness and his love, It renews our thanksgiving. I think that's the very purpose of this psalm. And we hear it as the second refrain. Uh, We hear it in the second refrain that shows up in each of the four scenes. In verses 8 and 15 and 21 and 31, the psalmist says, for all of these people, for all that you can identify with them, it says, let them thank God. The Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. The, re- the psalmist is reminding us to do what we so easily forget. He's helping us enjoy the good news of our good God again. So that we will praise Him as He deserves. According to C.S. Lewis, we always praise we love to praise what we really enjoy. C.S. Lewis says it like this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the joy. It is, it's a pointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good it is. It's frustrating to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley's unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. It's frustrating to hear a good joke and not be able to tell it to anyone. The Westminster Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But Lewis says, But we know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. Church, if you enjoy what the Lord has done, then say so. It's actually what the psalmist calls us to do in verse 2. We glorify God when we speak forth our thanks. He says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. We glorify God when we give Him thanks with our words. Beyond that, in verse 22, we learn that we glorify God when we offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. This is another way for us to give thanks for God. In the Old Testament, it was actually common for people to make a vow. When there was something going on in their life, some prayer that they were asking God to answer, they would make a promise, God, when you do this, when you answer me, I will do this. I will offer to you this Thanksgiving sacrifice. Now, uh, commentators, help us uh, understand here. Uh, this is not an I'll scratch your back, Lord, if you scratch mine kind of arrangement. The Lord does not barter. He doesn't. But it's a way for you and me, the worshipers to make sure that we give an appropriate expression of thanksgiving to God when He answers our prayer, however He answers our prayer. This this is essential. This is so helpful for us because thanksgiving is one of the quickest emotions to evaporate, isn't it? How many of us know what it's like to spend hours or days or weeks in nervous and anxious prayer about something and have the prayer answered and then what do we do? We quickly just move on to the next thing. But if we make a vow, if we make a promise to God, then we're ensuring that we can give adequate and appropriate thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. And if we do that publicly, I want you to consider the effect that that has. What effect does it have when you hear your brother or sister stand up in the church and say, I'm going to be specific about what the Lord has done for me. Not just regarding salvation. Yes, we can talk about that together. But as the Lord answers our prayers, as as he addresses the longings of our heart, as we open up about how we needed a home, a place to belong, and he gave us one. What does it do to the hearts of our brothers and sisters when they hear us give him thanks for having a home? It renews thanksgiving in our own hearts because we know he's done the same for us. Time fails me. We could talk about how we glorify God when we sing about what He's done. How we glorify God when we, as we began with, as we attend to these things. As it says in verse 43, not as an afterthought, but as an emphasis in our lives. We glorify God when we give Him thanks when we praise the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God of Israel, this God who is good, whose steadfast love endures forever. He, He has not failed to keep His promises even though we, His people, fail Him. We were faithless, but He is faithful. We abandon Him, but even here, He has not abandoned us. And so... Listen well to this psalm of thanksgiving. Go home and read it together with your family. Read it with your friends and be reminded of what you've forgotten about yourself, about your story. And you'll be reminded too about what you've forgotten about the Lord and what He's like. Go home and talk to each other and be specific about what the Lord has done for you. And be reminding each other, too, about the promises that He has made to still do for His blood-bought people. He has bought us. He has redeemed us. He has gathered us together in Christ. And He is preparing our eternal home. And so together we'll remember that thanksgiving on our lips, the praise of Christ the Lord, it's actually one of the truest sacrifices that we can offer up to God. Let's pray. Father, we do give You thanks now. We thank You that when we were lost and wandering, You, Yourself, were the one who made the way to come back home through Christ our Lord. You, Father, are the one who came to us when we were imprisoned in our own sin, enslaved in the fear of death, and you're the one who set us free in Christ. You are the one who heals us by Christ your word, who assures us that though we experience some of the consequences of our sin, the the full... Wages of sin were put on Christ for us. He tasted death so that we might not have to taste the ultimate penalty for our sin. And so, Father, we praise You as the God of steadfast love. We praise You for Your goodness. And ask now, Father, that You would receive the the prayer, the singing, the thanksgiving that we offer up to You. Through Christ our Lord, in his name we pray. Amen.